0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life. How's everybody doing this second week of Advent? We are in our Advent series we're calling Prepare the Way. It's a great name for the series because that's what Advent is all about. Advent means arrival obviously the arrival of Jesus in this case. It is a season of anticipation, and Advent is designed to help us. It's a season of preparation. It's designed to try to get us to wake up, to turn our heads in the right direction, to look for the right things, to prepare. Because the danger of Advent, in the Advent story itself, in the Christmas story, is not just the people that did show up for the birth of Jesus, but all the people that missed the birth of Jesus, of which that would be most everyone. That same truth would be true for us today if we're not careful. Even in this room, room full of people, most of which claim to follow Jesus. Uh, the danger is most of us are in, will probably or are at least in danger of, if we don't navigate na- Advent well, missing Jesus, no matter what we do on the morning of and we read the story and all that kind of stuff, Jesus is waiting to find us in this season, and Advent's designed to prepare us for that. And So every Advent season begins with hope, because you have to open yourself up to the possibilities that God could be doing something in the world. That's relevant. It's relevant here on the Palouse. Advent always comes in winter. I don't know if you've noticed that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it, it comes in winter, it shows up at this time when everything we are losing, we have like the least amount of daylight known to man, except for those in Alaska, and probably Canada in between. But we have this short little daylight window, everything is getting cold and icy and slick, and it just, it just pulls you into this. We were joking around on Thursday night, a few of my buddies... And I talking about, you know, family coming into town, different things that are happening this holiday season. And the comment was made, well, if you can just survive until January, and that is the thing that pulls on us in Advent, Advent is designed to wake us up out of that. Don't just survive until January, hope. God is up to something. And so that's what we talked about last week, opening ourselves up to the possibility that there's something happening in the midst of all this drab, all of this... Like literal, like creation, death, like plants and daylight, death. Anyway, um, sorry, all my cynicism coming out. <laughs> Maybe Christmas is about a little bit more. Um, so, sorry, Grinch quotes have become my thing. Um, so we have this, and then hope leads us into peace. And so we watched this video about Shalom, say Shalom. Shalom is this idea of wholeness, this idea of everything in its proper place. I, I love shalom as a verb. Love that. Making things, restoring things, putting things back. Josh Gray asked this question during Sermon Club this week I thought was really good. When it comes to the second week of Advent, it's shalom, the word that would describe your state, your emotional state of being in the second week of Advent. Shalom. Uh, go back in the video to that uh, not really I'm not asking the video guys to do this they'd be like what um, in that video in your mind you remember the, there's like that profile graphic of the guy and then the wall falls apart and he's like Ooh. and then it comes back together and he's like Ooh. right? It, is that which, which one of those postures describes your emotional state of being every advent now on the surface There's a lot of things that I love about this time of year. A lot of of warm things happen, a lot of things that bring me a lot of joy, a lot of things that I look forward to. Uh, First and foremost, eggnog is going to be here at least until the first week or two of January. (laughs) That's going to happen, and I will beat you to the last cartons at Rosar's, so I watch that like a hawk. The staff there know me by name. The eggnog guy is coming. Is this your last pallet? Anyway, so there's, there's, there are things that on the surface I love about this time of year, but dive just underneath the surface. And this is what Advent tries to get get us to do, because in our culture, especially, we love to live on the glossy surface and just kind of numb the pain. And and, and we just like, hooray, dive just underneath the surface. And what you have is this exhausted, I don't know about you, but this is a season of expectations. What my family expects of me, what my extended family expects of me, what culture expects of me, what my job expects of me, what, what I expect of me, what I hope to accomplish every Advent season, which hardly ever gets nailed down, what... Uh, and then there's like, well, what, what does God expect? Like, this becomes, this is, anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, it's not like, shalom, it's, oh. And so much of that feeling is connected to relationships, isn't it? I mean, when we talked about shalom between relationships, I mean, that's a big deal. We all have that, maybe not all of us, but many of us are thinking about who's coming into town or who we are going into town to see. And you know all those questions, right? There's the crazy uncle who's going to get things started because that's what he loves to do. There's the child that's just not quite where you would like them to be. There's the parents that don't understand you. There's there's all of this stuff, and there's all of these broken and screwed up and dysfunctional relationships. And and every year, and you if you're like me, you're already making plans to, like, Stiff arm the dysfunction. And, oh, there's that relationship, and I'm just going to keep that over here, and we're going to avoid that. And then there's that one connection that we're going to make sure it's just kind of like a passing, like, Merry Christmas. (laughs) No, I got to, sorry. You're already making plans. Here's the good news. This is the Advent story. This is the Christmas story, and so we want to let it speak to us again. Now, some of you are going to be like, oh, no, you're doing this again. Yes, A, because it's Advent, and Advent is designed to tell the same story over and over and over again because it has to do its work in us every year. But two, there's also new people in the room that have never heard this before. I met somebody on Thursday night, and was like, I'd never, nobody's ever said that to me. Okay, well, then we need to keep saying it because there are people that have never heard it. So we're going to do this yet again. I believe even if you've heard this 42 times, there's still something in it for you. So let us, okay, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, you see. Sorry, I got all Dr. Seuss there for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) This was the first census. I did have eggnog this morning, but it was straight. There was nothing in it. Okay. This was the straight out of the carton. Just ah. this was the first. You think I'm joking. Ask my wife. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. So Caesar issues this census. Now, in their world, the census is a big deal. It's not just inconvenient, although that it is. You have to, whatever your family is doing, that doesn't matter what your job is, you now have to uproot yourself and all your family members and travel to whatever land you're from if you don't live there anymore, and you have to be there to register in person for the census. So it's horribly inconvenient, but beyond that, it's corrupt and abusive. So in their world, once Caesar decided there was going to be a census, what do you also collect at the census? taxes. You never have a chance. You're going to have everybody at a table. Yeah, we're going to take some money. Okay. So he sends out a tax bill. Caesar will send out to your region, the governor of your region, a tax bill. He might say, you owe us a quarter of a million dollars in taxes. The governor of that region sends out a memo. We owe how much money in taxes? Not a quarter of a million. He just throws $50,000 on top of that. Says, we owe $300,000 in taxes. he takes that extra $50,000, stuffs it in his pocket. And what does everybody below him do? The exact same thing. It's how you made your money. It was this totally corrupt system. Good news. Totally not relevant for today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, just let that sink in. Okay, sorry. Yeah, Okay, so pockets that money. And by the time it gets to you, the person who actually has to pay the tax, you, you, the question's really valid whether or not you're even going to be able to pay it. And they know this. And so the methods that they use are anything from wholesome. They use physical intimidation. They use physical abuse. They confiscate property. They confiscate daughters. It's full of sexual abuse. It's a horrible, horrible system. Context. Context matters. It's not just like, oh, Joseph has to go to Bethlehem, grab a donkey. This is like anxiety upon the whole family. The family that he's going to see in Bethlehem is going to be just, will we, we, have, will we be able to pay this? Will They're going to be stressed beyond all get out. So Joseph went up from his town of Nazareth in Galil to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of David, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So he has to go to Bethlehem because that's where his family is from. I don't know why he's in Nazareth. I'd love to have the backstory to that someday. But he's living in Nazareth, and his family, when his family, when his predecessors came into the land, God gave them a section of land at Bethlehem in that region so he has to go back there in order to register because that's where his family land is at. So he takes Mary there. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room. Yes, NIV. Those words rarely come out of my mouth. Yes, NIV is usually not how that works. But there was no guest room available for them now, your ESV or a lot of other translations, including I believe the Old NIV, will translate this what? No room in the inn. Here's the problem with that. It's not an inn. A, they don't have Motel Sixes, but they do have uh, uh, what we what they would call an inn. It's not what we would think of. I'll show you a picture here in just a moment. But just to talk about the words that Luke uses, the word for inn is the word pandaxion. Say pandaxion. Pandoxion means in. Luke knows how to use the word. Luke is aware that the word exists, and he knows how to use it because he uses it in Luke chapter 10. Talking about the good Samaritan, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to a pandoxion, and took care of him. So Luke knows what the word means. Luke knows how to use it. Sometimes people are like, well, Luke just chose that word, but he meant, nope, nope, Luke knows. Luke also knows the other word. The other word is cataluma. Say cataluma. Kataluma translates guest room. Luke also is perfectly aware of what this is and how to use it, like in Luke 22, which is where Jesus is preparing for the Passover, he sends disciples into town to look for a certain person and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the kataluma where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, what is the place that Jesus eats his Passover with his disciples? We call it the, the upper room. That is a kataluma. A cataluma most often is a room within a larger house. Usually set apart for special guests, special occasions, Cataluma is a guest room contained within a home. So when Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem and they're told there's no room for you in the Kataluma, they are not going to another place and there's no vacancy. You're being told by a family of which 20 or 30, sometimes 60 or 70 people live within the same dwelling. You're being told there's no room for you in the Kataluma. What? You have... 40 people in there, make room, scoot over. There's no room in the Cataluma? That's ridiculous. They are being, and where are you going? If you're Joseph, you're going to stay with your family. And this family is like, Joseph, listen, we've heard, I don't know where the baby came from. It's complicated, I'm sure. We have a census that's coming up. We, we, we don't have time. We don't have time for this. We tried, to, we tried to tell you when you left home not to make these kind of mistakes, and here you go, and you know what? I Like seriously, like seriously, I'm not trying to be funny. This is a, this is a very real experience. This happens all the time today. This happens all the time today. This has happened to people in this room. And so they get sent to a stable where there's a... Where there's a Where there's a manger, which is a feeding or a watering trough, and they get to have the baby there. Now, we've often talked about a very typical, what is a typical Middle Eastern stable, right? And so we have, and so we've done this a lot. So we got some pictures for you today. Uh, Here's a shepherd's cave. This is a very, very big one, but very convenient when you have 40 people. No, okay, never mind. Um, But yeah, so we, this is Aaron's trip. Aaron likes to go to this cave. This is Aaron's cave. I think it's officially called Aaron's cave. And uh, here's the next picture where they're going up. Just, uh, just to give you some photographic feel for it. Let's go to the next picture. Here's what it looks like on the inside. Merry Christmas. All the soot on the ceiling, always the same. I've been in 20 or 30 shepherd's caves all throughout Israel. Always the same. Same stuff on the floor, same stuff on the ceiling, same smell. Doesn't change. Uh, here's, I mean, that's where you want to give birth Right? That, that that is not exactly the facilities that they have at Gritman. I said that differently in first service. It came out totally backwards, and I did not mean to say that. I I figured out if you said it with a different tone, the opposite is communicated. I did not mean that. Here's here's the cave that I take my group to. I think it's better personally. But you can you can appreciate it. here's a picture of us on the inside. So, I mean, I, that's where, I don't know if that's where you picture Christmas. And now, a lot of people have written me, and Aaron, uh, every year, whenever we do the Christmas series, I'll send emails or Facebook messages, and they'll say, ah, that's not fair, there's no way they would have been sent out to a cave in the middle of nowhere, uh, here's a scholar that disagrees with you, so we're just going to deal with it all this morning, so I don't get any emails, and then I can just reference everybody back to this sermon for years to come, okay? We're just going to get it all done. Uh, so it's true, like it, they very probably weren't sent off all, like in miles off into the distance, but it, it is very, very, very likely in the upper and low, lower Galilee um, would be common. What, what was around Bethlehem? That's what's debated. Bethlehem's closer to Jerusalem, so what was there? Um, it, very, actually, let's go back a picture. Very common that you would build your house on top of that. Be a very common thing to do because you have a flock. Why not build it on top of a cave? Boom, Done. Okay, so you could, you, could, you could do that. That would be very common. Uh, let's actually jump forward a couple pictures. Here, here is, here's another kind of insula. This would be very typical in the region of Bethlehem. Uh, this is what a lot of scholars argue for, and I'm not arguing against it. Very possibly could be this. Uh, you live in the upper floor. On the bottom floor is your stable. It's where you keep your, like the donkey is posing for the picture there. Uh, they stay in the bottom floor. Here's a picture of the bottom floor. So yeah, a lot better. No, this is not better. In fact, when people email me, they're like, see, you don't understand, Marty. They were really surrounded by people. This is worse. You can hear the 30 people above you? They're not, like, coming down to be like, hey, how are things going? You don't send the pregnant woman who's about to give birth down where the donkey do is at. Like, send the kids down there or somewhere else. But in a culture of hospitality... This is not, I know some of you are like, did he say donkey do? Yes. (laughs) This is not, this is no better. In fact, if anything, I'm sensing the rejection even worse. This is the equivalent of you coming to my house and being, me opening the door like three inches with the little chain thing. I'm like, hello? Oh, there's no room for you in here. You're welcome to stay in the garage Oh, I, I'm not going to move my car. I have to go to work in the morning. I'm not going to move my car. But if you can find a place like in between the cars or underneath the car, the truck kind of sits high, you could, like, it'd be great. Okay, bye. This is not like, so. oh, they were surrounded by, no, they weren't. They were rejected. Next, next, here's one around Jerusalem. Uh, this next diagram. Uh, this is what they call the cave house found close to Jerusalem in the towards the region of Bethlehem. So it's a cave. You have a common area where you might do your profession, have your meals, you have your living area just inside there and what do you have in the back? A stable in a cave with all the niceties or lack thereof. Again, is anything changing about the Christmas story? Here's another house. Here's another house. We we'll just get them all out of the way. We found this house it's called the Pillar Home, the Pillared Home. Now here's a cool thing. This one actually has a what? A cataluma. Okay, this one actually has a cat. So the family is going to live in the upper floor of the pillared house. The bottom floor is where you can see all the stalls and the feeding troughs and the mangers, and all that stuff is on the bottom. And okay, so in this instance, they would be told, sorry, there's no room in the Cataluma, and you're not staying with us. So you're welcome to stay with the animals. Uh, next picture. Okay, this, is, this next picture is actually an inn. So this is actually a pandoxion. So let's just assume that Luke lost his mind and has no idea what he's talking about and met an inn. Let's see if this gets any better, okay? Here's a pandoxion. This is an inn. Uh, it's made for travelers. There are no towns. If there's a town, you don't have an inn. An inn is, a pandoxion is where you, you put them on a day's journey. So you can always get the pandoxion. You don't have to stay without and so you, you keep your flock pinned up in the pen, and then that building right over there, next picture, this is where you would stay. It's built for your comfort. Okay, that would be the Cataluma, kind of. And then over on the other side is this building, and that's the stable where you could put sick animals, get, get your animals out of the weather, do anything you need to do in there. I wanted to show you pictures of the inside, but that's kind of hard, next picture, because it's not very big. <laughs> Nobody laughed at that, but there you go. There's a picture of the inside. That, that expression on Paula's face is about the expression of, like, how they probably felt about Christmas. Oh, really? This is it? Okay. Next, next picture. This is what provides that rich aroma everywhere you go, in every stable I've ever been in in Israel. Same ceiling, same floor, same smell. Now, here's why this is relevant and important. Because your Advent story is a story of all kinds of dysfunction, broken relationships, relationships that are in chaos and lacking shalom. don't Don't do a show of hands. How many of you, rhetorical question, this picture starts to communicate what your Christmas is probably going to look like? I find there is, that, there is that maybe that one relationship or maybe you're the odd one out or, but from different angles and perspectives, this is going to be what many of us experience. And so when we sterilize the Christmas story from all of its context, we rob it of its ability to prepare us, to prepare us. Now, now here's what strikes me about this. God could literally have the choice of any time of history, any family, any situation, every possibility was open to him. He could have been born to an upper middle class white family in the Pacific Northwest. And he chose this. He chose, of everything that could have been done, he chose this. God did not run from or avoid for a second all of the relational dysfunction of the world. In fact, it's almost like God said, that's why I'm here. Now, here's my question. Did God tell us this story so that we could sit back and go, thank goodness Jesus did it so that I don't have to? Or did God tell us this story so that we could go, if that's what God is like, I wonder if he's inviting us to be like that too. I'm not asking us to upend and ruin all of our Advents. I'm asking us to be prepared for where it is that Jesus wants to show up in your Christmas this year. Because all of those plans to avoid the chaos, maybe there's one of those places that you need to plan on embracing and engaging it. Because that's where Jesus is going to be born. And if you avoid it, you are going to be like 99% of the characters in the Christmas story. And that's all those people that didn't show up. Because they had all kinds of things to be worried about. They had a census that had to be taken. They had shopping lists. And they had things that they had to do. And they had places they had to go. They had dinner they had to get ready. And they had company coming in. And they had all kinds. And maybe in your life, There is one place, my teacher, my rabbi used to always say, just once, just once, just once, find the place that you're supposed to be and show up. Just once, do the thing that Jesus would do. Just once. And the kingdom of God takes an inch. I'm not asking you to show up for every single person and every single dysfunction that might come your way this Christmas, but find one. Find one place this Advent, one relationship, one place of chaos. Find one person stable and show up just once this Christmas season because that's what God did for you as a model for how we could partner with him because how does God show up in everybody else's chaos today? Luckily, he works in spite of us, and he shows up supernaturally in all kinds of ways. But one way, a big way, is he asks his people, you go be my hands and my feet this Christmas. Go make shalom where there's chaos. All right, before I get out into four more rabbit trails here, because I want to Uh, we're going to head towards the Lord's Supper. So if our servers want to help us get ready for that, they're going to pass out the bread and the juice. If you're visiting with us today, uh, if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you are family, and you take some bread and you take some juice and you join us. Um, Just hold on to the bread and the juice, and we'll take it together here in just a moment. I have some implications to walk through as we do that. First implication... God doesn't avoid the mess. He embraces it and reveals the truth about himself and us. God doesn't avoid your mess. This is one of the hardest things for me, I believe, for us to partner with God in. I got a message this week from somebody who is connected to our body of faith. They said, I'm going through this time and I would love to be able to just connect with and relate to other people as I go through this and just let them see me, like really see me. I just want actually just to be seen and just to be heard and just to be noticed and accepted. And everybody avoids me because of my plague. Well, first and foremost, if that's where you're at, you need to know that if we all avoid your mess, God does not. God does not, because it's hard to believe that God would act any differently than everybody else around me, especially when some of those people are God's people. They're supposed to be showing me what God is like, and if they're rejecting me, it is very hard to not get the impression that God looks at my mess and God goes, "Ooh." well, when you get it all figured out, I'll, I'll be Ready? God doesn't do that. In your mess, God looks at you in your eyeballs and says, I see your mess and I love you every little bit in the midst of it, and I'm here to help you embrace it. Now, next implication. Peace comes from our ability to trust that the mess does not mean God is absent. It does not mean he doesn't care about you. It does not mean he's upset with you in some way. Because you are in the mess does not mean that God has rejected, forsaken, or abandoned your journey. That's important for you to internalize if you are in a mess because it is a hard truth to believe. It is the invitation of the gospel. Now on the flip side of this, We have to embrace this as we look at other people. We looked at this last week with Zachariah and Elizabeth. And God's people love to look at people in crisis with a sense of avoidance and judgment. And this Advent, we have to work to believe in our own hearts about other people that just because they lack peace, just because they lack shalom, doesn't mean that they're not loved doesn't mean they're not accepted and doesn't mean that the angel's pronouncement of next week that God's favor rests on you doesn't rest on them. Because only when we believe this will we ever have the resiliency to show up in somebody's poo-filled stable. But that's what Jesus does. Next implication. This is an Aaronism. I like Aaronisms. Who we are in relationship is who we are in relationship, whether with God or with people. And what Aaron means when he says that is who you are in relationship with God is who you are. This is not Aaron, actually. This is the Apostle John, which Aaron is at his best when he's usually quoting the Apostle John. But nevertheless, thank you. You cannot be in right relationship with God and a poor relationship with others. And we love to do that. We're like, oh, I'm just so in love with God right now and I'm just really struggling with people. Or I just really could never forgive that, that person over there. I could never begin that journey. There is a who you are here is who you are here. And who you are here will be who you are here. And John says you cannot split the two. Who you are in relationship is who you are in relationship. Next implication, get messy. In a season and a culture and a Christmas time, that tells you to do everything but. Tells you to do everything but. The message of the kingdom, dare I say the gospel, tells us to get messy. Tells us to find somebody's mess and just once this year, just once, jump in it. And this isn't a condemnation. I know many of you for years have been jumping into people's chaos. Just once, sometimes twice, sometimes three times, sometimes every week during Advent. I celebrate your work. And I hope this message is a don't stop. Because it's worth it. It's what Advent is all about. And this is what we hold in our hand. We have an implication on the screen that said, get messy, and we hold in our hand bread and juice. Bread and juice. Jesus got as messy as you could possibly get. He went to the furthest extent of the mess. He found all the dark corners. He didn't just show up. He wasn't just born in a stable. He then spent his entire life looking out for the mumsers, preaching forgiveness in a world where it was not popular, committing himself to shalom, 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 and eventually going straight to the cross and dying for shalom so that you and I could be shalomed, reconciled unto God reconciled unto others, reconciled unto our world. Paul says all things reconciled to him because he got messy. He took a piece of bread that night. He broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. And whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Christmas and Jesus And later on in the meal, he had a cup, and he took the cup, and he passed amongst his disciples. He said, "Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me." Let's remember Jesus today. Father God, I know how badly. I want to avoid all of the stables that you have placed throughout my life. I also know, God, that you're not expecting me to show up and save every single one of them. But I pray you would turn my attention on when when I'm confronted with one that you do need me to step into this Advent season. I pray that every single one of us would help your kingdom take an inch by showing up in somebody's Christmas, bringing shalom to somebody's chaos. I, I pray that your shalom would reign, it would, would grow like a mustard seed planted that can't be stopped. Would that be the story of an Advent seed planted this Christmas? God, we love you. We want to love you more. We wanna take the love we've received from you and give it to other people. So would you help us do that this Christmas? We pray all these things in the name of the Christ child, Jesus, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from real life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.